The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Squawk Box. The bill to raise the debt ceiling clears its first hurdle in committee, now heading for a House floor vote this evening, with just five days to go before the deadline. China's manufacturing sector falls further into contraction, hitting a five-month low. Service sector activity grows at its slowest pace in four months, pushing Asian equities into the red. An AI-inspired rally sees the Nasdaq close above 13,000 points for the first time since August 2022. But as May draws to a close, the Dow is on pace for its first negative month in three. Meanwhile, chipmaker NVIDIA briefly joins the Trillion Dollar Club before giving back some gains and closing out the session with a market cap of $990 billion. So, very good morning, everybody. Very good morning, Karen. How are you doing? Good morning. Well, right. well, very well, thank you. The video story is fascinating, isn't it? I think we should just round up $990 billion, just call it a trillion, yeah. shall we, between friends? Yeah. No, it's, 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 a, it's a very interesting story, and it, it, again, makes you think about what do these big round numbers actually mean? What do these targets mean? How significant is that going to be for this company and for the story as a whole, really? Well, joking off camera, actually, one of the most expensive, or the most expensive club in the world to join, yeah. and you don't get much for the membership, do you? No. No. And uh, Jordan did some work here, one of ours, uh, on this. And fantastic note that he forwarded uh, about the seven companies that have actually achieved a trillion and what happened to them. Uh, and we'll tease that out through the morning. So I think uh, that's a very, very interesting story. We need to tell you about the debt ceiling as well. So why don't we get on with that? The agreement to raise the US debt ceiling has passed its first major test with the House Rules Committee voting to accept the proposal. Lawmakers voted seven to six on the $31.4 trillion compromise agreement, which came after days of discussions between President Biden and congressional leaders. The bill will now head to the House of Representatives today where a floor vote is planned for around 8.30 p.m. local time according to a tentative House voting schedule. Well, Tom Cole, the Republican chairman of the House Rules Committee, urged lawmakers to agree to a compromise. Today's bill is a product of compromise and reflects the realities of a divided government. We shouldn't allow that to overshadow what this bill accomplishes. As I've often said, in a true negotiation, you always get less than you want and give up more than you'd like. But with the passage of the Fiscal Responsibility Act, we'll responsibly lift the debt ceiling and avoid a default that would devastate the American economy. Meanwhile, the deputy director of the National Economic Council told CNBC that the proposals on the table are fair. It's usually a sign of a good compromise if uh, there are some folks who are a little bit unhappy on each side. Uh, but I think ultimately what we have here is a good, fair deal uh, that reflects the realities of the divided government situation that we have. Uh, a deal that, number one, takes the possibility of default off the table uh, through 2025 and protects our economy from the possible recession that could have occurred if there was a default. A deal that protects Social Security, protects Medicare, protects Medicaid, uh, important priorities for the president. And number three, all of those signature pieces of legislation that the president passed in his first two years in office the Inflation Reduction Act, the CHIPS bill, the infrastructure package, all of that is protected as well. All those important investments will continue to flow into the economy. So overall, we think that this is a, a very good deal and something that we would like Congress to pass. 
The Congressional Budget Office has released its assessment of the debt ceiling agreement, projecting it could reduce deficits by about $1.5 trillion over a decade. The CBO also said the bill would cut mandatory spending by around $10 billion, with revenues falling by around $2 billion, Karen. Jeff, let's take stock of the market action. It was a choppy old finish yesterday, but the monthly ranges, I think, reflecting some of the debt ceiling issues, the macro worries out there, but also the AI journey. And you can see just how split the fortunes were between the Nasdaq and the Dow, down 3% for the trading month for the Dow. And you can see lifted by almost 6.5% on the tech-heavy Nasdaq. Uh, the S&P is somewhere in the middle of that mix, but it is telling you how you needed to be positioned around that technology story so significantly for markets if you're chasing performance. In terms of the various sectors, I mean, we've been talking about already how narrow the leadership has been by a number of tech stocks. In terms of sectors, if you look at the broad-based market trends impacting the S&P 500, eight out of 11 sectors actually traded negative for the month. Energy, the real laggard, down about near on 9%. So it is telling you again that a lot of the sectors were still tracking underwater for the trading month of May, despite what looks to be some good signals on at least one of the major indices. In terms of that NVIDIA play, this was the AI store expressed through one stock in particular. Yesterday, we're talking about it reaching the trillion dollar club before just drifting off those levels. And this is how strong that may bounce has been the stock soaring, as you can see, to the tune of 47% over the course of the month. A stunning performance there and its relevance for uh, some of the major boards as a tech leader. It was uh, NVIDIA, Broadcom, obviously also in the space. You saw gains uh, very strong for the trading month and the contribution also hugely significant for the NASDAQ. In terms of uh, the other major theme here, and that was US banks, uh, the wash up from the crisis that we saw impacting regional banks it continued on really for uh, some of the trading month I think investors just concerned about the tightening of credit how you've seen uh, the wash up from that story and as a result uh, still a fairly decent red ink for some of these major names and they're not even regional banks they are major US players Morgan Stanley down more than 7% City down 5% Goldman Sachs and Bank of America both off more than 3%. JP Morgan more contained there. And again, it was at the forefront of that cleanup around First Republic Bank. Uh, Wells Fargo was the only one to move positive at this point. And perhaps that is a nod to its presence on high streets, that there is a direct link between deposits pivoting to this bank that is very present on many of those uh, major uh, streets and towns and cities. To the regional banks, so you can compare the monthly performance, uh, some of the, the majors still hard hit. PacWest down 32%, Western Alliance down 5%. Zion, though, actually picking up some steam, 3.7%. So the show and tell around earnings season, somewhat significant for this part of the market. Let me take you to Asia and what we're witnessing there. All eyes still on Japan. And over the month, we've tracked up to the tune of almost 2,000 points. We've come off the high water mark of uh, 31,000 plus. In fact, we had 31,300 odd in session yesterday. So the gains we're seeing uh, would have been higher if we'd done the snapshot a day earlier, but still 6.8%. That is a very strong performance. And obviously, as we compare that to other major performers being the Nasdaq, uh, the other trades, Hong Kong, that is a very weak trade. So much for the reopening theme out of China that should have floated the, the Hong Kong boat. It just didn't. You can see 1700 points into the red shanghai composite down 3.7 percent so the epicenter as we take a look at that uh, covid reopening story and australia again around the commodities narrative it was a, a trade that was weaker too down 2.6 percent 
Let's get some thoughts on the market. Joining us is Philippe Uzan, who is Chief Investment Officer at IMGP. Philippe, uh, welcome to the show. What a trading month. There was certainly a lot of action taking place underneath the hood. What jumps out to you about the, these big tech themes, the macro themes, and of course, some of the geopolitics in the backdrop? So, good morning. So, obviously, I mean, as you were saying, the the main theme for the for the past weeks has been this dead ceiling drama, which uh, is now going to a to a kind of happy end. Uh, clearly, if we look at the the part of the market that were disrupted, uh, you had uh, yesterday a, a very strong rally in the very short term TBLs. If you remember, a TBL a U.S. government TBL issuing. Uh, maturing, sorry, on June 1st, on June uh, 8th, was trading at 7% yield a week ago, which is, uh, which is crazy. And now it's going back to 450, 470. So, uh, going back to normality. We have seen also, um, a, a clear relief rally in the uh, US government CDS. Uh, the CDS one year was trading at what, 180 a week ago. Now it's back to 70, uh, to 70 basis points. So clearly the, the, the fixed income markets have uh, uh, taken the, uh, uh, the, the, the compromise uh, in a good way, and uh, the, the deal is on its way. And it's rather a good deal, which is also a good surprise because it pushed back the can to the beginning of 2025, so after the uh, next year presidential election. And the uh, negative impact on, on growth linked to spending caps will be, uh, will be further limited. Philippe, so now with, right. yeah, sorry. just wanted to come up back to one of the main trades because as we all watch this debt ceiling issue play out, there was a lot of positioning around growth and technology or a handful of tech stocks were the clear winners here. Some were saying, well, if you're going into a slower economic environment, you want to be chasing the only growth you can find, that will come from some of the big technology names. Others were saying the reason we saw this technology bounce was because it was just a switch away from banks. Tech stocks became the safety net. What do you make of, of, of the themes that really propelled money away from the banks into technology? Yeah, so uh, it's, a, it's a very good question. I think that what helped also basically uh, technology and U.S. large cap growth uh, since the beginning of the year, and it was clearly the case in the months of May, I mean, there is this AI theme and, it, and, it's, here for, and it's here to stay. It's not a, it's not a few weeks story uh, for sure, but there was also... The fact that uh, um, there was an increase in liquidity in uh, in the risky assets space because the treasury, the U.S. Treasury, couldn't issue new 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 bonds or new bills, and it's important to keep that in mind because, on the other hand, in the months of June, and it will start probably by the end of this week, there will be a massive liquidity drain from the market because the U.S. Treasury will have to uh, reconstitute a cash buffer and is likely to uh, to to issue. Uh, probably more than 500 billions of US dollars this month. And it will be very important to see who is going to buy those bills. Uh, is it going to, to be uh, uh, people taking money from the banks? So you will have uh, a decline in bank reserves. Is it going to be money market funds that take that from uh, reverse repo facilities? But uh, the environment in liquidity uh, could be, um, uh, could face, I would say, a headwind uh, so it could be a headwind, I would say, for the, for the, for the, for the tax. And you're right to point out that if you look at the equity markets in the months of May, there has been a, a very, very strong dispersion. You have almost 9% difference between U.S. large cap growth and U.S. large cap value. 
the the second one is negative uh, and the and the uh, and US large cap group has been dominating uh, has been dominating the market and there are only a few stocks uh, that uh, contribute uh, really to the to this rise so you've been talking about Nvidia it's true but if you look at the S&P on the month of May it's rather 1% performance uh, just on one month but in fact you have a few companies and we all know them it's Nvidia uh, it's Microsoft Alphabet Amazon contributing to uh, uh, more than 25 basis points to that total performance uh, each alone. And, and this is uh, so a very, very uh, uh, narrowly concentrated market. And this, by the way, is only true for the US market. If you look at European market, if you look at Japanese market, uh, emerging equities, uh, the performance is much more diversified, I would say. And it's very important for us. At IMGP, we are big believers in active management. And I have to recognize that for the U.S. market, uh, beating the index has been a formidable challenge this year. The, the absolute performances are good, but the relative performance is difficult, especially if you are a growth manager. Uh, but for the other segments, being value in the U.S. or Europe, Japan, emerging markets, uh, it's a good environment for active managers. Philippe, um, let, let, let me roll you forward six to 12 months because um, we're nearly halfway through this year and I think there's still some opacity as to around where central banks are taking interest rates at this point and whether we're going to have a recession in some economies and a serious slowdown. But by the time we get to 2024, at least we should be getting some clarity and some certainty on the interest rate outlook, a much more predictable world, hopefully, in 2024. What do you think the chances are that we may begin to see uh, curves begin to steepen once again, that we might begin to see investors believe that we are through the worst and it's time perhaps to, to recommit to risk. How likely is that to happen in your books? So I'm, I'm pretty sure it, it will happen uh, at some point, but that it's, uh, it's still premature versus, uh, versus uh, uh, 2024. So it's, uh, I mean, it's still in seven months. Uh, if you look at uh, Fed funds expectations, the market now is still pricing that the Fed may increase by 25 basis points another time, either in June or in, uh, or in July. So you're right to point out that uh, we are very, very close to the end of this very strong uh, hiking uh, cycle from, from the Fed. Uh, but it means also that uh, uh, the, the economy and the market will have to realize that uh, uh, there, I mean, we are uh, starting, I would say, a significant slowdown. And if you look at uh, earnings expectations for the second part of this year, so just for 2023, uh, the, the, the consensus is expecting uh, a rebound in earnings, which seems very unlikely to us. So I agree with you. There will come a time and probably maybe before the end of this year uh, to reconstitute risk in the portfolios. I mean, uh, especially in non-US market, valuations are quite attractive. Um, and uh, there is also... Uh, a lot of uh, a lot to do in the fixed income markets, but at this stage, it's for us really premature. As I've said, the liquidity uh, environment will be negative in June, with the Treasury issuing a lot of uh, a lot of uh, a lot of money, and the valuations in the U.S. equity market, especially in some gross names, uh, is really really stretched. 
Let me ask you something slightly different. Um, I don't know whether you will have seen the survey, but let me just give you the bare bones of it. The um, San Francisco Fed study has decided that wages are not an important driver of US inflation. And according to their analysis, only 0.1% percentage point of uh, three percentage point rise in inflation can actually be attributed to wages. Well, that kind of blows up the whole core argument here and the argument that we're going to see persistent second round effects in a wage price spiral. Do you think the economists may have got this wrong, that the wage story is a head faint and actually the decline we're seeing in inflation is going to become deflation or disinflation very rapidly? That would make the central banks have to turn very quickly on their interest rate strategy. Um, so I haven't read that uh, that survey to be honest, but thanks for thanks for mentioning it. I will definitely do it. Uh, but uh, so um, we have to remain very humble. I mean, everybody, including the central banks, have been wrong in forecasting inflation in the past uh, in the past two years. So uh, um, we have to we have to look at the data uh, very uh, very cautiously. Uh, if I looked at uh, what happened uh, in the UK, for instance, last week, where there was uh, again an upside surprise on inflation, um, I wouldn't be too optimistic on uh, on uh, on that field. Uh, in the US, I think you're right to point out that clearly the economy is on the disinflationary road, and what is happening also on the oil prices that you are mentioning this morning, at least for the for the headline, will help the inflation number to continue to come down. Uh, I'm expecting also the shelter component uh, to be that that has pushed inflation up in the first part of this year to really calm down in the in the second part. Uh, but I continue to think that in the next five to ten years, uh, inflation is more likely to be above the average that we had on the on the past uh, on the past twenty years. Um, climate transition is expensive. Um, globalization is plateauing, so no, I think that uh, uh, we have more risk in the future to continue to have some upside surprises on inflation than going back to the, let's say, new normal deflationary uh, phenomenon that uh, we've been knowing in the past 10 years. All right. It's been a pleasure catching up with you. Thanks for your analysis. Uh, Philippe Ouzan, Chief Investment Officer at IMGP. And I recommend everybody go and have a look at this piece because it really turns on its head some of the analysis that we've had from the economics community recently about where we may be going on wage-related inflation. As I say, it's uh, San Francisco uh, Fed economist Adam Shapiro who has uh, published this piece. Uh, U.S. consumer confidence has hit a six-month low of 102.3 in May. According to data from the conference board, the report also found concerns around the labor market with the number of consumers describing the number of jobs as plentiful falling to its lowest level since April of 2021. Still to come, more Chinese data, jitters driving Asian stock towards their second negative month in a row. More on that when we come back. And for more on the drivers at Laggard's inequities over the last month, you can check out this Squawkbox podcast.
ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on cnbc.com. Fidelity has marked down the value of its stake in Twitter, saying the company is now worth roughly $15 billion, just a third of what Elon Musk paid for it. Fidelity has now reduced the value of its stake in the social media platform three times since Musk took over last year. Elon Musk has visited China's Commerce Ministry, continuing his visit to the country, which has also included a meeting with China's Foreign Minister yesterday. Musk said Tesla opposes decoupling from China and will continue expanding in the country, according to a foreign ministry statement. Chinese factory activity slowed faster than expected in May, hitting a five-month low of 48.8. The services sector stayed in expansion territory, but still grew at its slowest pace in four months. Let's get out to Sam for more on this data. And, and Sam, it just seems to fit in with a pattern of weakness that we're seeing recently. Yeah, very much so. Good morning to you, Jeff. And this sort of downward spiral we're seeing, particularly on the manufacturing side of the equation, which continues to disappoint. And you only have to look at the reaction in the markets regionally. Today, you've had Asian equities uh, pulling back. You've also seen uh, that coming across in the regional currencies as well. You've had the Aussie and Kiwi dollar uh, pulling back too, and also playing out in the commodities space. Uh, When you take a look at the Chinese currency, uh, we have seen further depreciation uh, with that as as well um, as well as equities uh, right now the onshore rate is going at 710 uh, 40 let's call that around four tenths of a percent in the session uh, we did get a week of fixing by the PBOC this morning that is sort of suggesting to us that perhaps the authorities are tolerating some weakness uh, in the currency at the moment uh, perhaps as one guest was suggesting earlier this morning uh, to support some of those exports but as far as those numbers are concerned it was really just an, another disappointing uh, set of figures um, particularly when you look at factory activity, which uh, we saw another month of contraction, the lowest in five months now. And that continues to come as we see manufacturing struggling to keep up with the pace of that post-reopening rebound. We're certainly seeing uh, on the services sector side. Uh, I'll get to that in a minute. But uh, really, in terms of the breakdown, we saw... Uh, that falling across the board in terms of those sub-indexes when you look at new orders, but also new export orders continuing to contract. So perhaps a bit of a prelude to the trade numbers we'll be getting out uh, in the next week or so, but it does come off the back of this uh, slowing momentum we've seen with, of course, the producer prices, uh, the PPI continuing to stay in deflation, and also those imports of falling sharply. Now, with the non-manufacturing PMI uh, in contrast, that has been relatively resilient. We have certainly seen that staying uh, comfortably above the line that separates expansion from contraction. Uh, Although we did see a bit of a slowdown from the April to May uh, numbers, and that was despite, interestingly, uh, the big uh, spending spree that we saw over the May Day holiday where people were going off traveling. Uh, It was good for things like tourism, accommodation, uh, and things like catering. So that really helped drive that that number up. But as I said, it was still a slowdown uh, from what we saw in April, despite that 
holiday. So the big question is now uh, is really the strength of this consumer at a time when China is very much relying on them to mitigate some of the softer overseas demand because really they're just not going out and spending uh, on those big ticket items. Uh, now, as far as the data we got today, this of course looks at the bigger and state-owned firms in China. We'll be getting an idea of how the smaller and private firms will be holding up when we get that Taishin uh, manufacturing PMI out uh, tomorrow. Uh, but as I said, so far it doesn't seem to be boding well uh, for Chinese equities or the currency at this stage. Guys? Sam, Elon Musk also in China and uh, big questions have been lurking around what's happening at the Gigafactory, whether the, the Model 3 production has mm. stalled, exactly uh, what the demand story looks like. Just walk us through what we heard from Musk. Well, I think it's all those uncertainties that you pointed out, Karen, as to why Elon Musk has gone to China. He obviously recognises that, of course, he does need to show his face in a country which is very important to, of course, Tesla, where he has this factory, given uh, a lot of the uncertainty around the competition at the moment, particularly from some of these homegrown rivals uh, like BYD. We were speaking to an auto analyst this morning who said that uh, they need to maintain relevance in, in China uh, in order to uh, compete with when it comes to cost. So what we've seen is this has been highly political, as you mentioned in that read-in. Um, he has been meeting with a number of very senior officials. So he had a meeting with Qin Gang, uh, the foreign minister, and really the message there was that China is very much open uh, for business. We want to make a, a better environment for you guys in terms of investors. That was certainly what Chin Gung had to say uh, to Elon Musk. Uh, we've also now seen that he has popped into the Commerce Ministry as well. That is, of course, uh, Wang Wentao, who's just recently been over in the US, who's been meeting with the likes of Gina Raimondo and Catherine Tai. We had all this talk over the weekend of economic coercion, of course, uh, because of what we've seen in terms of the moves against Micron. And he's also met with the Industry Ministry, which over oversees the auto sector and what that is certainly suggesting to us uh, is that perhaps uh, he is seeing the value in you know meeting with these authorities as they try to comply with the regulatory environment over in China which is looking a little bit uncertain at the moment to make sure that they are abiding by the rules. Uh, now Elon Musk uh, has been fairly quiet on Twitter you could say uh, over in China during his trip of course it is an app that is banned over there, but we have heard some lines from the foreign ministry, him talking about uh, expanding over there, opposing this decoupling, uh, and also that the US-China relationship describing that as conjoined twins. Now, that echoed, actually, a CNBC interview that he gave a couple of weeks ago with David Faber, and you do wonder if perhaps that interview was what sort of got this trip across the line in some ways, um, because, you know, when he was asked by Faber about Taiwan, for instance, he pulled out the official Beijing line, uh, of course. So that was very interesting. But certainly in terms of the messaging we're seeing coming from the Chinese officials, it is very much one uh, that this is a year that we are very much trying to promote, that we are open for business and attracting foreign investment. Uh, he is expected to go over to that Shanghai factory uh, that he already has. And interestingly, there has been some suggestion that he might actually get a meeting also with Li Chang, which of course uh, is someone who was seen as very instrumental in bringing Tesla to Shanghai. Of course, he was the Shanghai party chief at that time. He is now Xi Jinping's number two. So let's see if that meeting comes through. Guys, back to you in London. Sam, thank you very much for the, the detail there. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com.
or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.